Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan, where I teach Japanese history. I'm joined today by Stephen L. Peck, a native of Moab, Utah, one of Mormonism's most creative and respected authors. He's an ecology professor at Brigham Young University and the author of several novels, including A Short Stay in Hell, The Scholar of Moab, Gilda Trillium, A Shepherdess of Rats, The Tragedy of King Lear, a couple of short story collections, Wandering Realities and Tales from Pleasant Grove, poetry collections, all kinds of great stuff. And today we're here talking about his newest novel, Heike's Void. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. We're also joined by Jennifer Quist, the fiction editor at Dialogue. Jennifer is a Canadian writer, critic, and scholar. She's the author of three novels, Love Letters of the Angels of Death, Sistrine, and The Apocalypse of Morgan Turner. And she studies comparative literature in Chinese at the University of Alberta. Jen, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Heike's Void. I love this novel. <laughs> I am I have blown away by this and by the beauty of this. I've loved all of your novels, but this is the one that's the most the most religious, perhaps, the most Mormon, the most certainly one about the atonement. Maybe give us a, a brief introduction to the book. The the book opens largely with the appearance of Arrow Demon, who is in the army at the time and he's involved in drugs he's he's not doing a lot of, of good things and it turns out that he's been given nephi of old as a guardian angel and nephi is a little chagrined at this because a lot of his contemporaries are doing better things than watching a drug-addled individual go through their life and so and the uh other main character is Heike. And she's a, a theology student who suffers a rather extreme trauma that it turns to her into somebody obsessed with revenge. And as the book proceeds, we follow Arrow and Heike through their adventures with them. They struggle with faith and their relationship with divinity and there's some directions and turns that are so surprising, I think, that play with the ideas of consciousness, what frames a, a consciousness, how that is structured with the idea of the spirit. And there's other characters involved. There's an apostle who gets to know them both. Uh, there's his assistant who also gets to know them both. And I follow them through some really dark times and some difficult times and some surprising turns, I would say. So that's kind of the, the nutshell. The novel takes place between the early 70s to the mid-2000s. And Arrow is in Germany as a soldier. He's a, he's a Moab boy. Right. And <laughs> that may sound familiar. <laughs> and, and, and like you say, he's getting involved in drugs, and he kind of gets tricked into helping... The Red Army faction in Germany right. in a terrorist attack. And you right. were you were in the army. Were you in Germany? Yes. And, and interestingly, I was there three years after the Bader Mannheim gang attack, the Red Army faction. And it was my mom's cousin was the only American killed in their bombing. And so the the novel kind of appeared with a bit of family history. Because we were all familiar with Paul Bloomquist and his death by the by the hands of this organization, so it's not an autobiographical 
novel in any sense, but it, it does touch on these sorts of family remembrances of, of what the Red Army faction meant to my mom. And I, and I now wonder how nervous she was about me serving in, in Germany just three years after that bombing. It never occurred to me then to think that she might be worried, but I think she was. What led you to write this book? My writing process is really strange in a sense. The books in some way appear to me, uh, not as a, a vision or anything, but they're written organically as I go along. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great question how this book appeared because I, I don't ever think of themes or something I want to write about. They emerge from the things I'm thinking about, the issues that concern me. I wrote a BCC by Common Consent post, like much like I did with Gilda Trillum. I was writing about the void, and I imagined in this post German professor, Heike, that was studying the void. I just started writing about that, that and as I did, the novel emerged it's sort of independently of my will. That doesn't make any sense, but it, the characters come alive, they appear, and they have stories to tell. I feel like a, a medium. I mean, I don't believe I had in the idea of a muse or that there's these are handed to me in any sense by a supernatural power, but I do believe they emerge from my depths and their their appearance are things that my brain is worrying about or thinking about or considering. And so a lot of the things I've been thinking about over the last couple of years are things like embodiment and agency and what grounds those and thinking about the atonement and what are the limits and conditions of that? How far can things be pressed? I think there's one scene in the book that one of the children of one of the characters asks, Dad, how come we don't try to reattach heads for accident victims with faith? If faith can do anything, why don't we even ever try? And the book, in a sense, is trying to take things to those sorts of limits. I really appreciate that you talk about this novel coming from your depths. And I think that's why, well, one of the reasons why it must work so well. And I've been editing a dialogue fiction for a few years now. So I read a lot of, of very good attempts to deal with some of the issues that are addressed in this novel, you know, things like um, homosexual lifestyles, things about, um, you know, even swearing and stuff <laughs> and, and feeling out of place uh, in the Utah orbit. People try to address these things with fiction coming from not at the depths, coming from a superficial observance of social injustice, which is powerful and poignant, but it lacks the rising from the depth that it needs to resonate properly. And so I end up publishing very little of that. And maybe it's the format of the short fiction versus the longer form like you got to, to do here in this novel, but you can sense the depth of the treatment of those social issues. They're not trite. They're not they're not social issues. And, and this is my thing with stuff like homosexuality in terms of the church. 
it's not a social issue and it never was. It's always a personal issue. And if people don't believe it's a personal issue for them, they just need to look more closely at their own lives and the people in it. Mm -hmm. And this is just so valuable to me to see finally uh, this kind of treatment uh, and it being tied not to a laundry list of grievances against church policies, which, you know, are conversations we should be having. But if we're going to have them in art, they can't sound like debates on Facebook. They have to be beautiful. And this is a beautiful way to treat these. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for that. It's nice to be able to see how this can be handled and that it it can be done in a way that feels authentic to people like me who who love people who are homosexual Mormons. And, you know, I, I feel in this novel a love for, you know, anyone who who lives like that and whatever choices they want to make about it. And that's not the only issue. Like this touches on so many things and there are a lot of characters in here from such a range of experience and that the one of course that draws our attention the most is is Heike herself how did you come up with this like you say you were thinking about the void how did that get you to this really singular amazing female character that you've written in Heike you know in the, in the middle of the novel her, her circumstances change and so her character necessarily changes, but still it was able to accept it. So where did Heike come from? Is, is there anyone in your history, in the news, um, who inspired her? Or where did she come from? She's amazing. Oh, thank you. One thing somebody said that I think is true um, at, a, at a panel for the book, they said, you love your characters, don't you? And it's true. And Heike, in a lot of ways, she combines that person I find in myself that loves nature and loves ecology and yet and has strong feelings and approaches. And as a theologian, she's trying to wrestle with hard, deep questions. And I think she was born out of love in, in a way. The more I wrote about her, the more I, I sort of fell in love with her. I just felt like she was a, a real person, and to, to, for her to be a real person, I had to do her justice. And a lot of times the way I write is I go back and forth a lot. People take a, a, a trajectory that I have to go back and complete them in a way. that They've grown some, and, and that needs to be put in, in there. And so she came, she came out of that kind of complex relationship between faith and ecology and nature. And really, the thing I think about her that leads her into the void is the passion with which she approaches life in a way. And when that passion gets misdirected, she can't help but follow it in, in ways that are dangerous and harmful. And I could see that in myself. I, I hear about people like her, and I think, what what would turn me into someone like that? What, what are the circumstances that could drive me to doing things that I can't even contemplate or think about now. And so she was born at, out of the things that I love and the complexity of nature and a love of trying to discover the divine and what it is and, and how it works. And so I think that's it's probably 
she sort of appeared, and the more I wrote about her, the more I genuinely loved her as a person. And so I had to, even even as she tends to the, the darkness, I had to honor that. I had to honor that. Mm-hmm. She's very scary at points. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you the most chilling line of hers. I'd have to say a swear word, but <laughs> when, she, when she tells... Um, someone i'm gonna fuck your husband i just oh she is too it's just extremely chilling and terrifying the stuff that she does and yet she holds our sympathy through all of that and you know perhaps she she is a monster in some ways but when we're talking here about the limits of things and the limit of, you know, the atonement is implied there, not just implied, but explicitly in this too. The atonement's got to apply to monsters. Uh, there's got yeah. to be nothing like either, either it's not true or it applies to everything. Yeah. And that's such an important and, and not very often asked question. And every time we try and talk about literary treatments of the atonement in the contemporary church, we seem to end up back at, at C.S. Lewis over and over and over again. And uh-huh. we have to have our own discussions of this. We have to have our, our own body of literature and allusions to it beyond this one very nice Englishman from a long time ago. And this book is getting me there, finally. Oh, thank you. It seems like a lot of the characters are able to take a part of themselves and bury it down. They kind of disassociate themselves from something in their past. Mm-hmm. And one time, actually, physically, this happens, that part of the character is structurally separated from, from the rest of her brain. But, but several times, I mean, so, I mean, Alma Loon is able to kind of push down and suppress his uh, homosexuality. And yeah. some characters like Arrow and his friend... Leroy, they eventually face, you know, whatever they've done in the past and they confess to their ecclesiastical authorities and they, and they go through repentance. They, they, they accept the atonement. And then some people like, like, Hey, case, I mean, she, she's able to love nature so much so that if she accidentally shoots a bird, she's almost devastated. And then immediately is able to like contemplate murder. Uh, <laughs> so they're able to, she seems like they, they're kind of, they separate these, these sections of themselves and Nephi, you know, Nephi not wanting to think about for, for so long uh, the harm that he's done to people. Was that an, a theme that was on your mind? I, 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 didn't, I didn't think of it as a theme, but it's something that I noticed and think about people in reality is that in some ways we know ourselves the least and other people see us sides of us and, and perhaps depths or shallowness in us that we wouldn't want to acknowledge that we we can't even see or we don't try to see and I think and I, I don't know how to speak categorically about this but I, I feel like that a lot of times the way that we live our life is a kind of blindness ignoring things that trouble us uh, embracing things that we like but maybe not looking at the, the, the fullness of what are, are a part of us. And, and so I think we, we you know, in a way, are compartmentalized in some ways. We've, we've hidden from ourselves our, our weaknesses or our darkness or our fears 
and, and sometimes even even the things that we love, we don't explore that to the fullness of the capacity that's there in love. And so I think a lot of ways, even though it wasn't a theme, I think it appears because it's something that it is a part of me, and maybe I'm extrapolating to others, but I, I feel like sometimes I really am surprised to find out who I am or how who other people think I am. <laughs> and, and there's things I don't want to own. There's things I, you know, are probably a part of me that I don't want to even acknowledge exists. And so I think that in a lot of ways, that is how how come so many characters are doing that is I, I think I think of my characters often are just instantiations of me in different modalities. <laughs> it's, 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 I, I don't know if that's true or not. That's a, one of the things I'm hiding from myself. <laughs> well, I think that Arrow is a great example of someone seeing through a glass darkly. Like, mm-hmm. He seems clueless all the time. Like the fact that he falls in love with Heike is just, it's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound sexist, but guys are, are like that, you know, can get so single-minded in their affection. Uh, but he seems to, he seems to be just, he's not concerned. Like Heike wants to know everything. She wants to know everything about nothing. She wants to know it all. And Arrow just wants to feel his way from one point to the next. And that's he's, true. I have noticed that, but I think that's true. He really does. Like, he just is feeling his way along, and he's happy in his moments, or he's miserable in his moments, and then he sets them aside. And it's kind of, when we speak tritely about how the atonement is supposed to work, he speaks tritely about how the atonement is supposed to work too. Like that great line about how when we get to the celestial kingdom and see the movie, it'll all make sense then. Like that's yeah. heard people say stuff like that. And you, yeah. you know, as, as a curious person like yourself or like Heike, you think oh, that's just not good enough. How could anyone go like that? But yeah. it is, it is kind <laughs> of like the, a hallmark of a, a tender soul trying to live the gospel of a certain sort. And there's all sorts of different ways to uh-huh. navigate the gospel. I mean, thank God there are. But he is one of the, the through the glass darkly, walk by faith, feeling his way and willing to to stay in the moment and see what it brings. He doesn't make any rash judgments at times when a rash judgment would be, you know, a very dramatic move to make in a novel for one thing, and understandable as a human response um, in others. And and I wanted to ask you this is it a happy ending? Because I can't tell. And I know the last bit is, the title on it is, what is it? Emergent Redemption, which is perfect, which is what the only thing any of us can ever enjoy in our lives, right? And when you have these two characters in their post-mortal lives, the only thing that they can hope to enjoy there too. So is the Emergent Redemption a happy ending? What do you think? So that's a great question. Um, and that's a great insight you, you made about Arrow, too. I mean, he, he does seem to, to be somebody who just goes in the moment. I mean, the hedgehog scene is a little like that, where he abandons his vision of Nephi to go grab a hedgehog. I think, I think that's, that's, that's real. And so is it a happy ending? And I've heard both, that it is and it isn't. And I kind of want the readers to be left 
with that, I think, because I honestly don't know. I kind of don't think I have access beyond what the readers do. Mm-hmm. I could see both. And maybe that's maybe that's a signal of my own unresolved tension about that. Uh, it, it is ambiguous. And so I, I kind of I kind of refuse to say because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think about you know J.K. Rowling and her rewriting Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh, this is what this meant. This is what this this, this is what happened. Oh, this yeah. is the way someone was and. And for me, I, I think once the text is closed, the author has no more access to the characters than what's given the, the readers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I honestly don't know. And, and, and maybe that sort of quantum indeterminacy is a part of so much of our lives where we can't tell if an event's good or bad or, or happy or sad. Mm-hmm. I sort of leave it to see where the reader sees where the electron collapse is. <laughs> is it is it happy or is it not? And and I, I it sounds like I'm being really coy about no, it. No, it, but but I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last sentence is really really short. Read the novel. Anyone who's listening is worth getting to. And I read it and I was relieved. And then I was like, oh no, that's actually very ominous. And then I had to choose. Then it was up to me to choose which one of those reactions I was going to adopt. And yeah, still going back and forth. Ooh, I only saw the happy ending. So You did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some people only saw the other one. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's a good thing to argue with your book group about. You know? <laughs> yeah, but the emergent redemption, that's got to make it into church parlance. That's a, that's a great concept. I love the idea of this maybe becoming our C.S. Lewis, you know, and our, our story of Aslan on the table. I mean, mm-hmm. the story of the story of Heike on the in in the hospital for the mentally insane. You know, this this the, <laughs> the story for of 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 Nephi, you know, being redeemed. Uh, you know, all these things. Those would be great ways to explain the atonement. Now, the beginning of the novel, you set up this idea that. God just hates some people. God loves some people and just hates some people. And, and you, you know, you have the scriptural backing for it. There's like in Romans, it says, well, just God hated Esau. And that's just the way it is. Um, so at first I thought, so Elder Holmberg, this apostle, you say that God hated. At first I thought, oh, this is just in his mind. He has some issue where he thinks that he thinks that God hates him. But no, it didn't seem to be in his mind. It seemed to be you were creating this universe where, where this was true. What, what, what was the purpose of what were you doing with that? I, I, I really like the idea of God as an agent who chooses love. And one of the things I, I fear is we're really tempted by the early Middle Ages theologians who write about God as sort of being the one and is this sort of undefined being who is all of one thing. And, and in, in my theological view, what I see is a God of agency that protects agency so much. And so I'm, I'm being a little playful there in thinking about the playfulness and agential nature of God being so defining that, you know, we, we have this idea of God is love. And I'm kind of thinking out loud, but I'm playing with this a little bit. But my thinking is that if God is... If God can't help but love, if God is just 
a part of his identity, then it's not very meaningful, really. It's just a condition of if, if somebody has an attribute they can't help, it doesn't really, it's, it can't be read either admirable. Women understand this perfectly because that's how we've been spoken of forever. Yeah. As you know, your uterus makes you love your kids. It's not right. you know, a, a choice you make all the time. It's ex- I get it yeah. completely. Carry yeah, on. yeah, that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. If it's if it if it is just imposed upon us as a, a condition of who we are, there's nothing admirable or worshipworthy or anything about it, and so. There's no progress with it if you don't have to do it. And and we also have the theology that God is constantly progressing. So. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so in the in, in the novel, the fact that God hates people has no effect at, at all. It, it, it talks about you know, he or she blesses people according to the, the the things that they need blessings for. And and there's no real effect of that hate on anything because God chooses to love. It's not just a condition of his being. There are people he genuinely just hates, but he doesn't let it bother him. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I could tell it was playful and I could tell it was another one of these pushings of the limit of, you know, if this is true, then it must extend this far. And if you can't follow it that far, Maybe back up a few steps and evaluate where you are. Yeah, it's very yeah. provocative and eye-opening. Can I ask you why um, the Book of Mormon characters are there? I found that if I imagine the novel without them, it still worked for me. Yeah, I think they, in a way, destabilize the narrative a bit. It's kind of an introduction of the depth of fallibility. So we see Nephi who has never really owned his killing of Laban. And they become rather ordinary characters in a way because they they mourn, they make mistakes. We see Ashila not being there for Haikai at a critical moment. And we see Nephi bemoaning the fact that somehow Laban has at this point become a god and he's still an angel and he just doesn't get it. He's trying to, to wrestle with it. And so I think... They're there as another layer of fallibility in existence and thinking about how an eternal existence, we, I think, too often maybe think of an eternal existence as, as this is the messy moment and then everything gets cleaned up at the end. And I think they're there to maybe challenge the idea that even God and Heavenly Mother are escaping from some troubling and, and dark things. I mean, even in our theology of a pre-existence, we have this notion that children were lost. You know, that's one of the great, greatest tragedies that can happen. And, and that kind of trouble exists there. And in the novel, too, that the heavenly beings, there's physical consequences to embodiment. Yeah. Um, wounds are still there, going to be there yeah, forever. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. That we we ha- we don't have any problem with that for Christ. We often acknowledge that He's kept the wounds of the crucifixion. But, but I won't I won't give this because it's a spoiler. But we see another heavenly being who's wounded. We see this sense that we we like to think that everything's pure and restored, but we see 
a, a limping Sam that continues to limp through eternity. <laughs> and there's this sense that if existence is hard and requires the best of us, I, I've always had this question. This is a this is a theological question. I see that the things that matter most to us are things that, that God seems to want to teach us are faith, hope, and charity. If God doesn't hope or doesn't have to have faith or charity, it seems like a lot of earthly efforts get pushed into something that's ultimately useless. And so I, I like to think that those are attributes that are still needed. The idea of God having faith seems really odd but I think there's something, at least to me, that existence continues to offer challenges and growth. My work in evolution has made me enamored with the idea of novelty. And that I think that if life hereafter isn't an adventure, I'm not sure I want to go. <laughs> you know, we have that Bruce R. McConkian idea of this, this afterlife where you just accumulate stuff, you know, for him, it was your mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Mansion. Or Bruce Herman Conkey always talked about wives as being accumulated, like they were some sort of prize winning thing. And, and if it's just a matter of accumulating more stuff or, and he, he turned off knowledge as a possibility for the next life, which Eugene England really fought against. And I think rightly so. Because if, if the attorneys are an adventure, I, I'm not sure I'm on board with, <laughs> with the journey. If it's just to collect getting more stuff, you know, that seems like a very 20th century attitude about, <laughs> about accumulation that I, I don't think I like. Yeah, you use the, the term, and I've got it circled in my copy, that what was of interest, I think it was to Heike herself, is the ecology of existence. She she comes across like yourself, of course, because you're the writer as a nature nature writer. She's looking at everything in such detail, and that extends to every facet of existence and how they all hang together. So, of course, that's going to go into you know worlds without end yeah. and lives and lives and lives yeah. forever. Yeah. yeah, it does come across. Oh, good, good. So, what is the void that Heike is 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 studying? Is the void that she, the way that she understands it, is that the way that you understand it in the end? Yeah. So I, I've always, I've, I've always been curious about the idea of nothing. I know you, you probably appreciate this and know this book, but the Japanese philosopher Nishitani has played a, a strong role, sort of in my in my thinking. He wrote this book, Religion and Nothingness, and it gets to this idea, I think of. A lot of times what emerges into the world comes from things like nothing in the sense of one of the things like a rest in music is where the music ceases and there's this pause, there's this rest from sound. And, and building that into music becomes a, a, a way of expressing newness in the way that the, the music unfolds. Rests are important, are an important note, you might say. And I think that's true in thinking as well. The idea of a blank canvas or an empty page all, I think, partake of the void. That all of these are examples of the way that nothingness 
creates a space for creation to take place. And in the book itself, she's studying Nishitani. She explicitly goes to study with him in Japan. And she's also thinking about where nothingness, how it works theologically. What What is the nothing from, from, from her perspective that creation takes place? And in a way, the last part of the book is where Haika is, in a, in a way, comes this newness, this sort of existing script that gets rewritten out of, and not nothing. I mean, it, it, it's not a, a, I'm not thinking about the void as a concept of complete absence, even though Haika writes about that in the, in, in the headings of the chapters or the, mm-hmm. in, in part one. But I think Haika's void in this is a way that sort of break between what she's longing to become and what she loses and has to be recreated in a way. And at some points it becomes this, this chaos world that, you know, threatens to overtake us and destroy the world. Right. Right. It reminds me of Orson Scott Card's Unmaker in his Alvin Maker books. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that she, she introduces some creation myths where, God is floating over the early creation and it's nothing but chaos and there's monsters in the chaos. And, and that kind of is the, in a sense, the void. So the void, the void isn't, even though she plays with this idea, it's not a complete nothing, but it also becomes a nothing as a point of new creation, novelty, the emergence of something uh, okay. different than it would exist without a space to grow. Okay. So at some, at one point I was wondering, Oh, is this, you know, I understood the, the positive aspects for a while, but then it seemed like, Oh no, it turns out it's really just this kind of evil chaos that we're trying to overcome, <laughs> but it's not just that. No, 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 no. It is actually a, even a, a productive notion in a way. I liked how you, you opened it up by saying the epigram where it says, thank you to background radiation, yeah. which makes this all possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was really the important part of, of the, of, the, of the book, so. <laughs> Jen, in your review, you talked about a little story that you thought encapsulated the book about the dog. Can you, what, yeah. t- t- can you tell us about that? What? Oh, yeah, I love that part. Um, Heike is starting to realize what a troubled person she is, what a complex person she is, and she does something very mundane. She takes her dog to the park. And her dog is very badly behaved. He's naughty. And she has to take a firm hand with her dog. And when he's corralled again, she's kissing him and talking to him nose to nose and tells him how naughty and bad he is. But it's so familiar to all of us that we know that there's still great love and care behind all the other feelings that she's had for it simultaneously with these feelings of love and it's so perfect and relatable and you know we have all these crazy stories we try to invent in the church to explain the atonement to people but it just has to be something like this oh i love that you know just like that no more parable of the bicycle just take your dog for a walk cut it off leash and reap the whirlwind with it loved it Steve, would you mind opening up to that section and reading that? She whistled for Georg. 
He would not come, and she spent 15 minutes chasing him around the dog park before she could snatch him by the collar. She sat down on the ground, crossing her legs and pulling the dog's nose into her own, and she rubbed the back of his head. You are a bad dog, she said, rubbing his back vigorously with her hand. A very bad dog. <laughs> I think I like Ken's telling. <laughs> no, it's good. It's simple. That's why I like it. It's simple, and I understand so much about the universe from right reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Steve and Jen, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thanks for the book. Oh, thank you. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network.